of Scripture. I always feel like the bad guy, you know, break, break it up, break it up, break it up. Okay, we're going to be reading from, um, starting at uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 37 this morning, and on through chapter 6, and the first part of verse 6. And those are pages 840 and 841 in your uh, pew or church Bible there in front of you if you need that or need help finding it. Let's uh, pray first. Lord, thanks again for being such a good God. And uh, thank you that we can trust in that and count on that for 2017. Thank you again, Lord, for your precious holy word that uh, you've given to us. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, in our lives this coming year, especially today, it will be quick and powerful and that we will be able to use it and learn from it and benefit from it. And I just pray for Pastor Mike as he comes and preaches now that uh, your spirit will be with him and be speaking through him to us and that you'd help us to hear and um, be challenged, be encouraged, and uh, be ready to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 5.37 And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning again. Good to be with you on this new year, this first Sunday, this first Lord's Day of 2017. We are back in Mark's Gospel. We have been out of it through the Advent season as we have been celebrating the coming of Jesus, looking forward to the second coming, looking back at the first coming. That's what we've been doing for the last four or five weeks. But our general pattern is to preach through a book of the Bible, and so we return to the Gospel of Mark. Did you remember we've been in the Gospel of Mark, church? Did you remember that? So we're back there today, and our passage today begins at chapter 6 and verse 1. But let me just kind of set the stage and refresh us of, of where we have been and where Jesus has been. Mark has been showing us through his Gospel the life and ministry of Jesus. And it has mostly thus far been taking place in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, along the perimeters of the lake. I have described where they have been hanging out mostly in Capernaum at Peter's mother-in-law's house as base camp. This has been base camp for Jesus and for his ministry, and he has traveled around the northern part of the lake. At one point, he goes across the lake, you remember, he went to the area of the Gesserines and cast out the demons of these two that were living among the tombs and then he comes back and by and large his ministry has taken place in this Galilean area and Peter's mother-in-law's home has so been base camp if you will that up until this point it has been described by Mark as Jesus house or as his home but today Jesus moves He transfers back to where he actually grew up. And so I have a little map of it here. Uh, No Google Maps in Jesus' day, but if he used them, uh, it's a nine-hour and 25-minute walk from Capernaum there. Uh, I look at the Sea of Galilee, and and I think of Lake Tahoe. Do you guys do that? Doesn't it look a lot like Lake Tahoe? You just see it. So he's up around uh, where Tahoe City is. If we think of the Sea of Galilee as Lake Tahoe, he's in Capernaum base camp, but he heads home. He heads to Nazareth. And we're going to see that the response to Jesus in Nazareth is quite different, quite contrasting to the response of the crowds and the throngs and the people coming all around him uh, in, the, in the northern Galilean area. So let's take a look beginning at verses 1 and 2 of uh, Mark chapter 6. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus left there, meaning he left Capernaum, leaving the house, the passage that Don just read, leaving the house of uh, the synagogue ruler where he healed his daughter. He left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, Jesus is following a similar pattern here in Nazareth that he did, similar to what he did in Capernaum. He would go into the synagogue and he would teach. And we saw back in uh, chapter, uh, where we go here, sorry, we're jumping all around already. Here we go, there's the verse I'm looking for. We saw back in chapter 1. That when he went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And we talked about how Jesus would have gone in and and would have 
explained what the Old Testament, what the Torah was saying, but unlike every other teacher, Jesus is saying, these scriptures are pointing to me. I am the Messiah. I am the one that is written about here. This is likely the kind of thing he would have been saying. And people were astonished at his authority. He was not teaching like the teachers of the law. He was not lording it over them, but he was revealing that he was the Messiah. And so he comes now to Nazareth, to this place where he grew up, where people in that synagogue, in that place, would have seen Jesus as a, as a child and as a boy. And the scripture tells us in the middle of verse 1 that they too were amazed. But the amazement in Nazareth, as we're about to see in just a moment, was very different than the amazement that was happening in Capernaum and in that northern, Galilee, northern Galilean region. So what, what was going on in, in Galilee was just these massive crowds and, and this just awe at his teaching, this awe of the person of Jesus and what he was doing and what he was teaching. This is one of my prayers for us in, in 2017 as we begin the first Sunday, the first Lord's Day of 2017, that we as a church family would be amazed at his teaching, at his life, at his, res- at his death, at his resurrection, through what is revealed in Mark's gospel, that we would be amazed and renewed and, and just in, in awe of who Jesus is as we continue to dig into his word through the gospel of Mark. One man I've been reading his letters recently, you're familiar with um, he's, he's you're familiar with him because of his uh, because of what his what's the song he wrote? Amazing Grace. Um, the, the favorite hymn of America, perhaps the favorite hymn of the world. What you might not be so familiar with is that John Newton was also a slave trader. You may have known that, but he was also a slave himself left behind in West Africa, a white man who was a slave amongst uh, East Africans, rather. And he had this incredibly immoral and debauched life that he lived for a long time. So his amazing grace song and describing himself as a rich, this man lived in these two incredible ways. And I've been reading just these last few days letters that he wrote. He described, he described, uh, I'm having problems with this thing again here. He described in his, uh, one of his spiritual gifts as letter writing. One of the ways that he thought God used him most was to write letters to Christians and to non-believers, and to try to encourage them in their faith. And he does this from this perspective of just this awe for God. And so I've been really uh, feasting on these the last couple days. Let me read uh, a letter or two that he wrote. I'm just bouncing around everywhere here. This is uh, the, the book that it's from. And he's, the couple letters that I'm going to quote from here are written to his brother-in-law, who is not a believer. He's kind of living the high life. And again, I'm just giving you a perspective of of what someone's life who is living in awe of Jesus, if we're in awe of something, we are often ready and eager to tell others about what we're in awe of. Um, One of my, uh, can I talk about your shoes, Mark? Can I? He just gave me a thumbs up. That's kind of a short notice uh, to ask permission, but I like to ask my kids permission before. My, My son is in awe of basketball shoes. He just, he loves shoes. It's a little bit unusual. He's in awe of them. And so things that we're in awe of, we, we like to talk about. Some of us are in awe of the mountains or in awe of 
quilts or in awe of whatever, things that we're in awe of, we like to talk about. And John Newton was in awe of Jesus and what he has done in his life. And so he, he writes letter after letter after letter encouraging people. And this is one of the things that he to his, writes to his brother-in-law, who's not a believer, who's living the high life. And he tells his brother-in-law, he says, I've tried both ways. I've tried to live this pleasurable life, uh, immoral life, and I've tried to live a godly life. That's what he means by both ways. And he says, and I find that religion, I mean the true inward religion, which is so generally scorned and opposed, does not destroy but greatly heightens the relish of temporal things. It teaches me to live comfortably here as well as enables me to look with comfort beyond the grave. In this way, I possess peace, which in every other way I sought in vain. He's trying to tell his brother-in-law, who's, who doesn't want to give up all of this high life that he's living, he's saying, yeah, I've been there and I've done that, but I find life to be even more pleasurable and more enjoyable in Jesus Christ. And then another one of his letters, he writes this. He says, I do not expect to convince you by anything I can say as of myself, but if he be pleased to make use of me as his instrument, then you will be convinced. How should I then rejoice? I should rejoice to be useful to anyone, but especially to you whom I dearly love. I love this man's heart. He's telling uh, his brother-in-law that he loves him very clearly. Men, Men have a hard time doing that. Do we have a hard time doing that, guys? We do. I've mentioned this before. You guys awake this morning? Men have a hard time telling men that they love them. But he's able to tell his brother-in-law that I love you, but he's also able to tell him very powerfully, very clearly the gospel. Why is he able to write letter after letter like this, both to Christians encouraging them and to non-Christians? Because he is in awe of Jesus. He loves Jesus, and Jesus has transformed his life. Back to our text now. Jesus has been bringing awe out of people all over Capernaum, all over the northern Galilean uh, Galilean region. But he comes home and he finds a different response. They are amazed as he's teaching. Back to our text now. They are amazed at his teaching. The Greek verb there in the middle of verse 2 is an imperfect tense. And so the idea is not that they had this permanent amazement, but while he is teaching, they were uh, amazed or enthralled or in shock or surprised at the way Jesus is teaching. And the reason is, is this is the boy that they knew growing up and they can't connect what he's doing now and this boy that they saw growing up. So let's take a look at um, the next thing and, and see their, their response, the, the response of the Nazarenes in this congregation, in, this, in the synagogue, what they're amazed about. They have four questions. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's the, this wisdom that has been given him, that he does even miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So everyone else is in awe. And, and they're, they're crowding, they're, they're after him. But in Nazareth, they have taken offense at him. They have taken offense at him because they 
are so familiar with this family and with Jesus as he grew up that they are not being informed about who he is by what he's doing, but what they know of him in the past. Let's look at these questions on the screen that they ask and try to get inside the minds of those Nazarenes in that congregation in the synagogue in Nazareth. They're asking, number one, where did this man get these things and what is this wisdom given to him? He shouldn't be teaching the way that he's teaching. This doesn't make any sense. That's the first question. The second question, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? How can this be? We know this guy. You know, he was on a junior high basketball team in our town. Yeah, we know his father. We, we know his mother. We know his family. Question number three, is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? Now, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on this phrase, the son of Mary. Uh, some people think this is a, a pejorative a thing referring to Jesus not being a legitimate child, and this was the perspective of people in Nazareth. I don't think that's the case at all. This is just simply familiarity. This is, this is the carpenter, the son of, of Joseph. The reason I think it's described the son of Mary and, and Joseph isn't mentioned is more than likely Joseph has died by this point. And so simply Mary is mentioned because we know this family. We know his brother, James, and Joses and Judas, and Simon. And then this fourth question, are not his sisters here with us? They are amazed because this doesn't compute. They didn't see him as a boy doing miracles. He didn't have the kind of theological training that they would expect. They're just in shock at who he is. And so we're seeing that familiarity here is breeding unbelief familiarity is hindering them from seeing Jesus who he for whom he really is this can happen to us as well Um, those of us that have been around the church a long time Sunday after Sunday we're around God's word we are around Christian music and Jesus can become kind of routine for us and we are no longer in awe of him because we are around his person, his word, and his people so much. Anybody experience that? It just becomes routine. Uh, their situation, why this familiarity, why they're not in awe of him is different because they saw him growing up, but we, just being around the church, the same kind of thing can happen to us. It's kind of like, uh, let me tell you a story Two families. Once upon a time, there's two families coming across Donner Summit. We've got a big storm coming, I think, even today. You guys see the weather? So uh, once upon a time, there's two families that are coming across the summit, heading this way on I-80, and it's a big storm. And one of the families, they make this journey all the time. And they are a little fearful of what could happen and uh, the traffic and, and so on. And so they're coming across, and the flakes are just coming down, and just massive snow everywhere. And sure enough, somewhere way down the highway, there's an accident, and the traffic comes to a standstill on I-80. Any, anybody experience that here? Just totally stuck, cannot move. So this one family, who's made this journey many, many times, uh, they are just frustrated. They are locked, they can't get off, they can't do the back roads, they're just stuck there on I-80. 
And the frustration and the anger is building in the car. Anybody been there? I won't mention any specific examples here. This is just a made-up story, all right? But, um, so so w- this family is just in massive frustration. But then there's another family, young children. They're from Phoenix, Arizona. First time to California. That they're, over, they're coming over the summit. The snow's coming down. The kids are like, when can we pull over? When can we play in the snow? And then all of a sudden, traffic stops. And they get to come out and enjoy. And they are just in heaven. They are in glory. Two different families in the exact same situation. One of them is totally familiar with what's going on. And they're frustrated and angry. And the other one just sees the beauty of the snow. And they're out there. Just, this, is, this is just divine providence that we get to get out right here. And play right in the middle of the highway. With the snow. The careful reader here of Mark's Gospel. Mark wants us to see how people were responding to Jesus in Capernaum and Galilee and contrast that with the way people are responding to Jesus in Nazareth. How the Nazarenes are responding. They are responding like, how can this guy do this? In fact, they have taken offense at him because of familiarity. And the reader of Mark's Gospel should be seeing here and should be asking God, by His grace, help me in spite of the familiarity I have with Jesus, in spite of the familiarity I have with the Gospel, in spite of the familiarity I have with Christian music and all of the Christian things that we have, give me awe for this person of Jesus, His life, His death, and His resurrection. Help me to want to write letters and to talk about Him the way that John Newton did. A couple comments on these questions, uh, these verses, uh, these four questions we've just looked at. One commentator writes this. He says, The townspeople cannot deny the phenomena of Jesus' remarkable wisdom and stupendous miracles. He doesn't do as many of them, we're going to see, but he does them in Nazareth, and they heard him teach. They can only wonder where these phenomena come from and what do they represent. We, we don't get this. They're marveling, they're amazed, they're confused because there's no way that this boy that we knew growing up could do these things now as a man. Another commentator writes this. He says, Jesus had not been schooled in rabbinic fashion, but had been trained as a manual laborer. His immediate family were well known to the villagers who judged that there was nothing extraordinary about them that would have led them to expect something unusual from Jesus. Not knowing the source of his wisdom, they find his office as a teacher offensive. Massive contrast how he's responded to in Nazareth versus how he has been responded to in the other places. So, the careful reader, what God is saying to us as we look through Mark's gospel is that we need to allow the word of God to inform us instead of any biases that we might have about him. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at the Nazarene's response to Jesus. Because Mark's already given us a clue back in chapter 3 of how his family was responding to this news about his ministry on the northern part of Galilee, in the Sea of Galilee. When his family heard about this, heard about what he's doing up there, they went to take charge of him. So Jesus hasn't been to Nazareth yet, but his family has gone to take charge of him. For they said he is out of his mind. This was the thinking of his own family. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, 
This is back in chapter 3. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. So they basically go to rescue Jesus in chapter 3. Now he's back for the first time during his public ministry in his hometown. And they are taking offense at him. The reader, a careful reader here, should not be surprised at this. So one of the good things, one of the most beautiful things about our God and about the gospel is that the people of, of, of Nazareth are not doomed here. That our God is patient with us. He desires all of us to repent and to come to know him. And so a question that we could ask as we go through this section is, well, well what happened? Did, did they stay in this place of offense? What happened to the people in Nazareth who just simply can't believe that he is doing what he's doing? And they maybe think his powers are from the evil one or who knows? They're just confused and then marveled. Well, the good news we know, uh, you know the story, you're familiar. Many of these folks uh, come to know the Lord, including his brother, James. Um, jumping ahead here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read it to you. For what I received, I pass on to you of first importance, Paul writes, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, one of his brothers, one of those from Nazareth, and then to all the apostles. So after the resurrection, at some point, James not only comes to believe in his brother, not as his brother, but as in the Messiah, as the Son of God. He, he, he not only comes to believe in him and to follow him and repents of his sins and follows him, but he becomes one of the leaders of the church. Another commentator writes this, says, while not a follower of Jesus during his ministry, James seems to have been converted shortly afterwards. When the risen Jesus appeared to him, James gradually took over the leadership of the Jerusalem church from the leaders among the twelve, becoming one of the most important leaders in the first century church. So the Nazareth, uh, the Nazarene community uh, is, is uh, doubting Jesus and taking offense of him, but many of them obviously come uh, to faith. So back to the second point that I squ- skipped over. Um, I'm praying for this and this first Sunday of the new year that we would allow the word of God to inform us instead of any biases that we may have in 2017. We're seeing the biases that the people of Nazareth had, and we also have biases uh, about Jesus and that keep us from from marveling and from being in awe of Jesus. I'm praying that the word of God are going to displace those biases this year and help us to live increasingly in awe of him. Let's come back to our our passage now and just finish it up. Just a couple more verses today. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. That's verse 4. Verse 5, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. So rather than the people being amazed at Jesus, Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. So, um, I've already looked at that one. I was going to make mention of of this as well, going back. um, Josephus, this is out of sequence here, but I I forgot to mention this. Uh, Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, also testifies to 
how James was called before the Sanhedrin. And James not only ends up being a believer, not only ends up being a leader of the church, but he ends up a martyr for the faith that Josephus and other historical documents uh, make reference to. It is a cool story, and it finds fuel for us. It gives us fuel for those of us, for those that we know who don't know Jesus yet, that there is those who are even offended at his teaching, that there is time for them to come to know him, and perhaps the Lord would use us to bring others to faith. So the final thing I want to say this morning is that we need to respond with this theme, uh, I believe, help my unbelief, to this passage today. This is one of the ways that we should respond to this passage. We get, I get this from Mark chapter 9, jumping ahead to where this father is wanting his son to be healed. And he cries out with this prayer, with this expression, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This is how we should respond because all of us, the reasons are different, but all of us struggle with unbelief in various ways and in in different situations. Uh, Jesus speaks about unbelief in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at that briefly on the screen. Jesus says this, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you who struggle with unbelief. He continues on in chapter 6. And says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So for different reasons, you and I need to pray this prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And worry itself is a symptom that we are struggling with unbelief, that we are not trusting God in that particular situation. This is why I went to Matthew chapter 6. Let me finish up today uh, with a quote here from Paulison. David Paulison writes this. He says, ask yourself, why am I anxious? Worry always has its inner logic. Anxious people are you of little faith. If I've forgotten God, who or what has started to rule in his place? Identify the hijacker. That's a responsibility you and I have. Identify who is the hijacker that has caused me to forget God, to have little faith, to to struggle with the sin of unbelief. We need to identify the hijacker. Anxious people have fallen into one of the subsets of every form of greed. What do I want, need, crave, expect, demand, and lust after? Or what do I fear, either losing or never getting? Identify the specific lust of the flesh. Anxious people eagerly seek the gifts more than the giver. They bank treasure in the wrong place. What is preoccupying me so that I pursue it with all my heart? Identify the object of your affections. Identify what it is. If we're worrying, it's something that is hijacking us. If we are not worrying, if we are in the right place where we are in awe of Jesus, he should be uppermost in our affections. And when we seek him first, 
all of these other things fall into place. Let's bow our heads and ask him to help us to do that. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your word. Lord, for different reasons, we are a lot like the Nazarenes. And we want to cry out to you this morning that we believe and we ask that you would help us to overcome our unbelief. Lord, we are simultaneously believers and struggling with unbelief. And so we ask that you would help us to identify what it is that causes us to worry or to be stressed out. Help us, Lord, to put you first and to be in awe of you. Help us to want to talk to others about you because we see your greatness, your beauty, and your glory. We pray that we would increasingly be influenced by your word in this coming year, 2017, and that we would love you more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name.